I want to invite you to open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. I'll be reading today from the King James Version. You will follow along if you use the Pew Bible in the new King James Version. Luke chapter 2, verse 8, reading through verse 14. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you, ye shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let us pray. O Lord, open our ears to hear you speak to us by your spirit, opening up the written word of the Holy Bible. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There are those times when we drift through a dominical holiday, a holiday of our Lord, the Lord being the Domini. This holiday, like this one, Christmas, we drift through. We go through the motions of celebrations without truly being brought up short with the significance of the act of salvation history associated with that day. Could be Christmas when the eternal Son of God became incarnate or the triumphal entry celebrated at Palm Sunday, a day on which Christ was highlighted as the King. And when celebrated in 1991, this congregation was formed as a worshiping body here on Luzerne Road. His death, we think of Good Friday, when he substituted his life for our own atoning for our sin. We think of the resurrection when he rose up from the grave victorious over sin and death, which we celebrate on Easter. We think of his ascension when he ascended publicly to the right hand of the Father, there demonstrating his authority over all things and his intercession for us. And then we think of Pentecost, a Dominical holiday, for it was Jesus who poured out the Holy Spirit with power, poured it out from the right hand of the Father. But there's no drifting through the holiday of Christmas this year for Redeemer of Foreign Presbyterian Church. There is no empty reveling and secular partying and glee which the Puritans condemned. There is no mindless repetition of the songs of carols, for if we sing them, we should mean them. And what does Christmas mean when a tragedy of epic proportions has happened on December 22nd? 
when a former deacon here was killed by his son, and that son charged with first-degree murder and wanton endangerment. That son was in our Sunday school classes, our worship services. That family sat here together in these chairs, and a widow was left with no husband, with five offspring, one of them in prison awaiting trial, one of them two years old, and three others stricken with great grief in the loss of their father. If this Christmas means anything, it must mean it in the face of that which has hit this family of parents who are confessing Christians, this covenant family. In the account of the shepherds dwelling in the fields, we learn first, verse 8, of a night that was real. We see a darkness that is still here. Verses 9 through 12, we learn of an angel who spoke good news in that day. We hear a hope that we need until this day. And verses 13 to 14, we learn of the heavenly host giving glory to God, and we gain a purpose for which we can live forever. So first, verse 8, we learn of a night, a night that was real, and we see a darkness that is still here. There would have been no need of Christmas if we were doing all right without God. There would have been no need of Christmas if there was no darkness. But the darkness was there and the darkness is still here. We needed God to intervene and we still need God to intervene to this very day. That's why there is a second coming. And that is why there is the Holy Spirit poured out upon us this day as our comforter. Tim Chalice puts it this way. For Jesus to die, he had to live. And for Jesus to live, he had to be born. And that's what Christmas is about. I don't think it's a mistake that the shepherds were addressed by the angel of the Lord at night. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. Note the contrast between the glory of the Lord, which shone round about them, and the night with its darkness in which they were dwelling. It's a dramatic contrast, and the brightness of God's glory, even the presence of of God's representatives, his angels, brings light to a situation. Those angels continue among us. The humble Christians who serve the Lord every day in this congregation, the unpresupposing women and men of faith of this church who help others, who come alongside the elders and deacons who tend to the flock. This tends 
to the dispelling of darkness when God's representatives show up. The angels had been in the presence of God and the glory of the Lord shone around about them. When a servant-hearted Christian who has been in the presence of God shows up, that servant-hearted Christian brings the glory of the Lord with them. Whatever you are going through today, this Christmas, open your eyes. We are here together. And the light shines. The glory of God is among us in the singing of hymns of praise unto his name, in the preaching of his word, and the gathering of his saints. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. There God is in the midst of us today. In the immediate context, if you turn back with me to chapter 1 of Luke's Gospel, there in verse 76, see part of the blessing of Zechariah of his son John the Baptist. And this blessing applies to Jesus for it is of John the Baptist being a forerunner, a forerunner of the Lord. Yes, indeed, we see that he is telling of verse 78, the tender mercy of our God, whereby the day spring from on high hath visited us. A day spring is the first glowing on the horizon of a larger dawn. It doesn't add much to your getting around where you're at because the light hasn't begun to be reflected off the firmament and then reflected down onto you. You still need a flashlight, but you see the breaking forth. That's the day spring. It's just springing up. That's Jesus. He sprung up. He is our hope. And as we walk, we will see that he will walk into our lives with full glow. As we read in John 8, verse 12, he said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Now, it puzzles me. Here are Christ followers, Mark and Melissa, and this is what happens? Is this having the light of life? But note in verse 79 of chapter 1 of Luke, here we see a promise that in the shadow of death, a light is given. In the darkness, there is a light which guides our feet into the pathway of peace. If you look at the four lines there, you see first to give light to them that sit in darkness. And we see in the shadow of death, the third phrase, first to give light, second to them that sit in darkness, third and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. The structure of that verse has parallels in it. The first phrase, to give light, is corresponding to guide our feet because light is something that allows us to be guided because we can see our way. And it is a particular kind of guiding. 
it is into the pay way of peace. The center two lines, sitting in darkness and in the shadow of death, are the dark side. But the structure of the verse surrounds the darkness and death with light and peace. God has the victory. He has the victory. He has shined in the darkness. And this verse is seconded by that read last night. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. John 1, 5. Darkness does not defeat the light. Death does not destroy life. Rather, the life overcomes death. Jesus has risen from the dead. Mark Bielstein is with his Savior right now. And at the last day, we shall be raised, all of us who believe. We shall be raised at the last day, and we will meet Jesus in the air with Mark and all the saints. Yes, Jesus has said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he should die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. So the darkness in which the shepherds dwelt is no accident. They were there and the light shone. And we have confidence that the day spring on high has shined in full glow upon our brother Mark. And he knows no suffering. It is not arbitrary that the angelic announcement of a coming Messiah came at night. And the Old Testament supports this also. Through the prophetic framing of the announcement of many names of the Messiah. If you turn back with me to Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. Isaiah 9, 6 and 7. Those glorious names... Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. These associated with his sovereign increase of his government and a peace that shall be of no end. The context for this revelation is the darkness of those walking as described in chapter 9 and verse 1. Nevertheless, the Dimness shall not be such as was in her vexation when at the first he lightly afflicted the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Those are places near Nazareth where Jesus eventually lived and also Galilee where he ministered and afterward did more grievously afflict her by the way of the sea beyond Jordan in Galilee of the nations. The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light they who dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them hath the light shined. These rich words of assurance, however, do not insulate a believing covenant community from the corporate experience of judgment which falls upon those who live and act in rebellion. Even true believers in Judah were caught up to be taken off to captivity 
in Babylon. They didn't get a pass. They got displaced also, even if they had not bowed the knee to Baal. But God preserved a remnant for himself who would return to Jerusalem after exile. As believers, we are never promised insulation from grief due to sin. It's just that the final outcome of the effects of sin always end for believers in the new heaven and the new earth. As we see in verse 9, chapter 9, there is judgment upon those who are proud and arrogant of heart. And that dribbles over into the life of the covenant community who suffer along with the rebellious. We read in verse 9 of chapter 9, And all the people shall know, even Ephraim and the inhabitant of Samaria, that say in the pride and stoutness of heart, The bricks are fallen down, but we will rebuild with hewn stones. The sycamores are cut down, but we will replace them with cedars. Go ahead and judge us, God, he says. We're just going to build back better. Just like they did at the Tower of Babel. Ever wonder why they coated the base with bitumen? Why did they coat it with pitch? Because they wanted to build better. They wanted to resist the waters of another flood if it came. In their arrogance, they resisted God. In verse 13, we read, For the people do not turn to him who strikes them. They don't repent, nor do they seek the Lord of hosts. Therefore, the Lord will cut off head and tail from Israel, palm branch and bulrush in one day. We see a darkness that is still here. Sin and darkness broke forth out of self-will in the Garden of Eden, and the physical incarnation of Christ has not ended sinful rebellion, but rather the light of Christ has served to encourage the believer and to put a spotlight on rebellious humanity. Mark Bielstein believed, and he is in the light, in the nearer presence of Christ, Melissa Bielstein and others of her family have believed, and Christ is still with them in the light of his mercy and grace. What has tragically happened is that a misguided perpetrator has broken forth in rebellion against God and his moral law in the Ten Commandments. You shall not kill. We read also in 1 Timothy 1, verse 9, but we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly and for sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of father and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers. And if there is any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. Oh, dear church, 
Remember, that's quite a laundry list there. We're shocked by the murderers of fathers, but are we shocked by the others? By liars? Fornicators? We need to commit ourselves to holiness. We need to commit ourselves to raise our children to holiness regarding human sexuality, that we would be committed not to lie, but to be honest with one another, that we would seek to honor God in the observance of his will, that that is our thankfulness for so great a salvation which we are given wholly by grace. Here is our thankfulness to obey his law. Let us ourselves be convicted of sin. Let us ourselves admit that as it says in Isaiah 9, 13, he describes them as those who do not seek the Lord of hosts. Have we stopped attending services of worship? Have we given up daily devotions? Have we stopped? being a people who come after God relentlessly, seeking him. There is no adequate explanation for what happened in West Virginia. Why this murder of this man? He loved his family. He loved Jacob. And I know from talking with him over the past year that he continued in that love. But without explanation, we have to say, what is our response? That we would examine our hearts that we would pray for the grieving, and that we would recommit ourselves to seek after God. Oh, dear church, come with me and seek the Lord this coming year and recognize that he has given us a remnant, and we are among that remnant, the believers in his name. Let us seek him and let us be those who hear the angel who spoke good news in that day, in Luke 2, verses 9 to 12, as he says specifically, For behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy. You who worship here, any who hear this sermon on the internet, that you would fear not, for there is given to you great joy. As Matthew Miller points out, only three times in the entire Old Testament do we read of great joy in the Old Testament. At the coronation of Solomon, at the recovery of the Passover under Hezekiah, and at the dedication of the rebuilt wall after the exile. Great joy is extremely rare and special. And that's why our eyes jump out here as we see that phrase in verse 10. It is great joy. It is mega joy. In Greek, the phrase is karan megalen, mega. It's mega joy. And we consider the fact that that phrase is also used at the time of the resurrection when the women departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. The joy of Christmas is no ordinary joy of something going right in our life. It is the mega joy of redemptive history. 
It's in that redemptive history, the grand flow of the exodus out of Egypt that constituted a nation that could be a repository for God's word and an edifice upon which the whole of the Old Testament system of prophets and priests and kings could be established, thereby enabling Jesus Christ to take upon himself those roles of prophet and priest and king. Yes, it is a mega joy of the exodus. It is the mega joy of the incarnation. It is the mega joy of the resurrection. The coming of the Son of Man shall be another joyful day for the church. And it is in our time of trial that we lift up our eyes and look for our Redeemer Jesus taught of the second coming, and he talked of the days of woe that would be at the second coming. Woe unto them that are with child, and to them that give suck in those days. For there shall be great distress in the land and wrath upon this people. So what he's saying here is whenever you know a distress that is great, and particularly when you know the distress of the second, of the days leading up to the second coming, do these things, verse 27 of Luke 21, and then they shall see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great joy. And when these things begin to come to pass, look up and lift up your heads, for your redemption draweth nigh. I am not declaring to you that I know Christ to be coming anytime soon, but I do know that the record of it in God's holy word is sure. And so I am entitled to say to you as a preacher at a moment of distress that you look up and seek his coming even now. In times of trial and grave danger, look up, your redemption draweth nigh. For unto you is born this day a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. We have hope today because of his first coming and because of our knowledge of his second coming. And finally, verses 13 and 14, we learn of the heavenly host giving glory to God. We gain a purpose for which we can live forever. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Whatever way you want to translate that second phrase, whether you translate it on earth peace, goodwill toward men, or on earth peace to men on whom God's favor rests, the responsibility for us echoes the cry of that host praising God. We are meant to give glory to God. That is your purpose. That is my purpose now, today. That is our purpose together in the new year. It is a purpose of ours to give glory to God by comforting the grieving. And we will do that this week, myself and Lois, on your behalf. And I pray that if you want to send me an email or a card, I'd be happy to bring that to them. I also say to you that we have a ministry to continue, 
a ministry which Mark was committed to among the boys of this church and the boys of this community that he wanted them to know Jesus Christ. Mark was a man full of grace. He taught me much. I've learned much about grace as a pastor at this church from him and others. And that is his lasting legacy in my life, to emphasize grace. So we will emphasize grace with regard to everyone in his family without exception. And we will leave in the hands of the civil authorities their responsibilities. We say in the midst of this dark time, we claim with God and his wonderful hymn writers like William Kelper, who wrote this hymn, God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unsearchable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace behind a frowning providence. He hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Claim God's purpose for you in faith, ministering to the sorrowful, reaching the lost, older people, middle-aged people, young people, being a witness in your own family, Live into glorifying God in your work, in your labor, in your leisure, in your church involvements, in your presbytery involvements. Seek to bring glory to God. What is God's purpose for you? What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. To enjoy him, you need to seek him. Seek the Lord of hosts today. Let us pray. Oh God, have mercy upon us as we've dealt with these weighty manners. Whatever I have said which is not of you, pass into the winds of eternal forgetfulness. But what is of you, may it rest deep in our hearts that we would be changed to believe your gospel. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.